Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. All right, I'm going to ask you to turn back to Mark chapter 10, where we were just reading a minute ago in our scripture reading passage this morning. And uh, after Mother's Day, a little pause we took there, we're back in our study through the Gospel of Mark. And as we learned two weeks ago, this section, the second half of Mark, is predominantly concerned with the message of Jesus more than his miracles. That's what has been the focus in the first eight chapters or so. But we're getting back here in uh, our study through the Gospel of Mark, the straight way. And uh, I'm glad for it. I like, uh, I like preaching through books. I believe it's God's main method. There's times when we should pause and, and address things. Um, one of the benefits of doing it this way, I've told you before, is uh, you really shouldn't ever be accused of stepping on anybody's toes. We come to the next passage, it's the next passage um, that we're going through. We, it, it allows me to fulfill the responsibility that Scripture declares for me to teach you the whole counsel of God and not jump around to things that are fun. This isn't this passage, <laughs> or um, ones that are um, non-confrontational even. And so um, Jesus here is teaching his 12 disciples in a larger group that's following him to listen to what he had to say. He continues to be confronted by the religious leaders of that day, the Pharisees. They routinely came to him with questions not to learn, but to trick him, to accuse him. That's what we initially have here in this passage this morning. Jesus is in and near Judea, and the Pharisees come to him with a question about divorce. Now, I believe that their intent was to get Jesus to say something very similar like John the Baptist did about divorce. And you remember what happened to John the Baptist when he did that? What did King Herod do? Put him in prison, eventually he, he killed him. And I, I think that was really a motive behind what the Pharisees were doing in this passage. Um, and I believe they also asked, because divorce was a prevalent subject then and sensitive subject, just as it is today. And I say this with great love and genuine concern. What I, one thing I want to avoid this morning as much as possible, at least from my end, uh, anything that I might cause is the opening of any old wounds. So please understand this before we even start studying. What Jesus is teaching here is primarily preventative. So he's speaking to people who are currently married, and to people who might get married in the future. That's what he is addressing here. The word of God is given to us by Jesus here to reorient us to God's plan and purpose in marriage. I, I am kind of interested in this. Uh, a lot of times in a Bible, you'll have like a subject heading above a section, uh, maybe a different color, different font. I'd like to know what some of yours say right before chapter 10. Anybody willing to interact with me this morning? Divorce, what, anything else? Marriage? A question of divorce? Well, you all are very interactive this morning. <laughs> I'm thankful for that. Um, 
Mine says marriage and divorce. And I do want to stress that. Jesus is not just teaching about divorce here. That's what the Pharisees come to him as the question. And he turns it to teach about marriage, to, to teach about what his original, what God's original design in marriage was. So if divorce is part of your history, I'm sorry, but I also hope that the gospel is. I hope the gospel is part of your history because um, you should need no reminder about what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. It redeems and it reconciles, it restores, it regenerates, it heals, it makes all things new. The blood of Jesus and our faith in it is that powerful, amen? All right, and so this section of Jesus teaching on divorce and marriage, it's not an isolated section of scripture on the subject, nor is it all-encompassing, especially in Mark. Mark is very short and concise. That's how God had him write it. It's straightway here, straightway there. We're not getting a full treatise on the subject. The Pharisees came to Jesus with a desire to trick or trap him with what he said, but Jesus turns this opportunity along with the second section here. It's not two different things. He, he combines this teaching about marriage with a section about children to teach us what a relationship with God through faith in Jesus is all about. What we have here in verses 1 to 16 is Jesus teaching on two reflections of what a relationship with God is like. Before we begin studying it verse by verse, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, I do pray that your um, spirit would be on, on me and that you would guard my words. I'm going to stick close to what you've given me, what I've studied all week. And Lord, I pray that uh, your word would be what impacts our lives this morning, that your Holy Spirit <clears throat> would illuminate its truth to all those here for the believers who your Holy Spirit indwells. And, and if there's one here, one watching that doesn't know you, that this would be used because it, you're teaching about what relationship with God through faith in Jesus is like, it, that they'd enter that relationship even this morning by trusting you as Savior. Let me pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing, a relationship with God through faith in Jesus is about covenant fidelity. Covenant fidelity in verses 1 to 12. This passage about marriage and divorce, and he talks first about the law's permission in verses 1 through 5. Verse 1 tells us where Jesus is and what he's doing. He's come south from Galilee. He's headed to Judea. That's where Jerusalem is. He's on his way to Calvary. Jesus is on his way to the cross here, and as usual, a large crowd gathers around him to hear him teach, and it says, as he was wont, as King James, for as he usually did, he began teaching them. Verse 2 then informs us of another group that came to Jesus, but not to hear his message. The Pharisees came to ask him a question. If you look at the end of verse 2, it tells us their motive. It says that they came tempting him. See, their motive wasn't education. Their motive in asking this question was incrimination. They came to ask Jesus his view on divorce, whether it was lawful for a man to put away his wife. Now, one thing we don't know here, but we know from the rest of Scripture, is that at this time the Pharisees had two schools of thought. They were divided over this subject themselves. They had a liberal wing under a rabbi, one of their leaders that was named Hillel, and they said that it the law, the law said it was okay in any instance. Divorce was justified for any and all reasons under this son. They had a conservative wing as well, the Pharisees did, under the rabbi Shammai. And they taught it was only permissible in one situation. This is what they said, all right? Both instances, this is what they believe. Not saying it's what the word of God taught or what, the, what uh, God wanted us to do. It's what they believe. And the second one was that it was only uh, permissible uh, if the wife if the wife was guilty of adultery. Now, God didn't teach that. It's just what they believed at that time. And their hope was that Jesus would take a position 
that would arouse opposition. They loved to have opposition, especially from one of the sides that believed otherwise, or from the people. I have a, a good idea because divorce was prevalent then as it is now, that many of them were impacted by this experience in their life. And so maybe the people who were following Jesus and listening to him would finally become opposed to him. Or maybe even like we mentioned earlier from King Herod himself, who had jurisdiction over this area here in Judea where Jesus was currently teaching. And look at verse 3. I just love what Jesus does here. And Jesus answered them. He answered their question. And he said, what did Moses command you? What did Moses command you? So where does Jesus tell them to go for the answer to this question? He tells them to go to God's word. It's very important to recognize what Jesus is teaching here. Um, Our, our schools of thought, their schools of thought, our opinions, their opinions don't really matter. At least they need to be subordinate in importance to what is all important. Word of God, what God says. Uh, as Southern Baptists, we like to define ourselves as a little motto. I don't know that's written anywhere, but as people of the book, this book, I'm thankful. We ought to be. I am afraid sometimes it's more of a motto than it is a manifestation in our lives. But the message of Jesus here is go to the book. And Jesus responds to the Pharisees' question that what God says about this matter, or any matter, is what's most important. God's word is authoritative. God's word is truth. It is truth. Uh, God's word is inerrant. We can trust it because it's perfect. It's perfectly true. God's word is all sufficient. We need to maybe say that louder for the Southern Baptist Convention. God's word is all sufficient. It addresses any need. It addresses every need that we might face in life and it addresses it with perfect truth. I like what Pastor Jerry Vines of... Uh, First Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida, said many years ago, and it's important, I think, in context to this week's message, and even really any message. Um, listen to this. In the Bible, we have God's counsels of perfection. God's counsels of perfection. And we also have God's counsels of practicality. God's counsels of perfection, they set the standard. God's counsels of practicality come down to the real world where our problems are, and they deal. They deal with those problems that occur in our lives because of sin. In this passage, we've got both, God's counsels of perfection and God's counsels of practicality. I enjoyed uh, going through Proverbs 31 last week. I really did. And um, I enjoyed talking to some of you afterwards who reinforced what I believed and why I didn't want to go through it. And, and very, we just had good conversations about it. And I had to reiterate, Proverbs 31 is God's counsels of perfection. This is a standard, all right? And then he gives us practical ways to do that. And what he expects is not perfection, but progress toward that. And sometimes it looks like two steps forward and one steps back. But look, he wants progress. Same thing in this situation here. Um, in this passage, we've got both. The Pharisees answer Jesus' response. Uh, Jesus responds in, in the form of a question. He says, what does God's word say? And then they answer Jesus, directing them back to God's word uh, through Moses here in verse 4. So what do they say? Well, Jesus said Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. So that was their response to what Jesus asked them. And they were correct. If you go to Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, there is an allowance there 
that Moses gave in the Old Testament law that restricted uh, divorce, it regulated divorce, it regulates it to where instances of unfaithfulness have occurred and not just on the part of the wife like they had believed. Uh, it regulates it there. Now listen, this was a concession with the intent to regulate divorce. It was to regulate what was already happening. All right, um, It was honestly to protect the wife who was being divorced at that time and in that culture. And it's very important that we understand that there's a big difference between a concession and a command. The Pharisees didn't recognize the difference between that. They took what was a concession by Moses to regulate what was already happening uh, and to protect people in that society. And like many other aspects of the law, they twisted it and they turned it to provide for whatever they wanted and whatever they didn't want. And what God wanted and what God didn't want, that really was off their radar completely. God's design in marriage and God's disdain for divorce wasn't their concern. Well, it should be, and it should be ours. We have to deal with what God says. In Malachi 2.16, we don't have the time to go through every biblical passage about it, and maybe we should in some Sunday evening or series of studies of what God says about marriage and divorce, but in Malachi 2.16, not all that long before this interaction right here, the prophet Malachi gave God's people and the leaders of his people God's view on the matter. In Malachi 2.16, he says, God says, I hate putting away. I hate divorce. Now, please understand, he did not say, I hate divorced people. Did he? He didn't say that. He said, I hate divorce. You know why he hates divorce? Because he hates sin. God hates divorce because he hates what causes divorce so many times. He hates divorce because he hates what divorce can cause, sin. God hates divorce because of the reasons for divorce and because of the results that happen from divorce. It's often that sin. That's what Jesus is saying here in verse 5. It says, and Jesus answered and son of them, for the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. God told Moses to give you this concession. For the hardness of your heart, he did that. Um, he tells the Pharisees that this was a concession in the Old Testament law for sinful people who needed divorce to be regulated in their society to protect those it affected all because of the hardness of man's heart. He's talking about sin there. Uh, the Greek word right there, hardness of heart, is sclerocardia. Sclerocardia. I've got a chronic autoimmune condition. I think I was born with it, but they found it when I was like seven. We made trips to Mayo Clinic about three times when I was growing up. Didn't know what it was, didn't know what it was until we got married. In the summer, we got married, flared up again. And the same doctor I saw like 15 years earlier, he said, well, you got scleroderma, scleroderma. And I said, oh, well, at least it has a name now. And he said, well, the bad thing is there's two forms. There's a systemic form, and it's fatal. It's terminal um, eventually because that form goes into the connective tissue, not just in your skin where I had it. My whole left side of my back, my whole up into my neck is where the affected part is. But he says it can go into your being systemic and go into the connective tissue in your heart and your lungs and other organs. Now, mine's limited there to my back, maybe a little bit of my GI tract, but it turns my connective tissue hard like a rock. I can't bend. I'm really inflexible, bad. 
like when I was a kid, we used to have the presidential fitness tests in gym class, and I'd have to sit there and try to reach my knees, and I got like a negative 22. Uh, it can't bend. And it can go. It can go uh, in a systemic form, even to your vital organs. If it goes to your heart and it turns the connective tissue in your heart hard, it's not good. It's not good. Sclerocardia is not good. Hardness of heart, Jesus talks about here, it's not good when sin does the same thing spiritually. Can you imagine the effects of this on a marriage? Hardness of heart. Anytime divorce is a reality, it's because of the hardness of heart, at least of some of the people involved. And because of an unbending, inflexible preference for sin and self. You know, back in Exodus, Pharaoh had it, didn't he? A couple times it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. That meant that he was determined to have his way. It didn't matter what God said through Moses or Aaron. It didn't matter what God wanted. He didn't care. He wanted his own way. Sin hardens our hearts and it tears apart our vertical relationship with God and also our horizontal relationship with others. Don't let sclerocardia happen to you. So this is a message for married people. This is a message for soon-to-be-married people, whether that's a year or 10 years or 15 years. Don't let that happen to you. What's the Lord's purpose in marriage? This is where Jesus turns it in verse 6. He says, but from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. So Jesus does here in verse 6 what he did already back in verse 3, and he teaches us to go to God's word for the answers to the questions of life. He takes them back before the law to God's original word in the Garden of Eden, back before the law's concession there in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 about divorce, to God's original design. That would even be a better place to go for what God uh, thinks about marriage. And the Lord's original purpose in marriage is, is given there in Genesis 1. And it teaches why God is opposed to divorce. Jesus says, from the beginning, this is God's original design, that's what that means, from the beginning, he made them male and female, a man and a woman. That ought to clear up some things in our currently confused culture. From the beginning, a man and a woman, and then verse 7, what do they do? They leave their families, and they cleave to each other. They leave an old identity of two, and they cleave into a new identity of one. Two becoming one, a union. Now, obviously, it's sexually, but only because it's also true physically and spiritually, that's what verse 8 describes. And the twain shall be one flesh, so then they are no more twain, but one flesh. I want to give you two principles. Um, this is like premarital counseling condensed into hopefully 10 minutes or less. Uh, so, uh, but what, what, what we went through with Christian and Evan, and, and we're going to go through with Elise and Scott. But let me give you two principles that are essential for understanding God's original purpose, the Lord's design in marriage. First of all, we have to understand that marriage is the doing of God. Marriage is the doing of God. He is the designer of marriage, so he gets to define it. It's not open to our interpretation. It's not open to our modification. God is the designer of marriage. Marriage is the doing of God. This truth is clear in the creation of a man and woman, the creation of marriage by God in Genesis 1 and 2, chapters 1 and 2. It's a clear teaching of Jesus here in verse 9 when he says, What therefore God hath joined together. So what is marriage? It is the doing of God. Marriage is the doing of God. It was God who made male and female, right? That had to happen before there was a marriage. 
So it's the doing of God. It was God who gave away the first woman. Who gives this woman to be the wife of this man? It was God. God did that. Uh, it was God who said. What Jesus says here in, in verse 7, God said it back in Genesis 2.24. It, it was God who performed the first one flesh union. And it wasn't sex. It was surgery. She came out of Adam. It's a one flesh union. And even when marriage occurs today, it's not the groom or the bride, it's not the pastor, it's not parents or attendees who are the main actors, it's God. Marriage is the doing of God, and that's what Jesus teaches us in verse 9, and why no man should put asunder. It says, let no man put away, let no man divorce, because it's God's doing. Now secondly, not only is marriage God's doing, but marriage is the display of God. That is God's design. It's God's design that his covenant fidelity that he has with us is lived out and displayed in marriages. It's his design that the covenant fidelity between a husband and a wife, their love for each other, their faithfulness, they're giving grace to each other, that that would reflect what God does for us in Jesus Christ. It is the gospel and action. This is my favorite part of what marriage is about biblically. So marriage does a lot of things. Marriage results in a lot of things. Marriage is, is for a lot beyond this, but foundationally, marriage is God's doing, and ultimately, marriage is God's display. It's a display of his covenant love and faithfulness to those who receive him by faith. It's a display of our covenant love and faithfulness back to him in return. God has Paul uh, teach us as much as in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. Why should husbands love their wives in the exact same manner that Christ loved the church sacrificially, faithfully, given himself for her? Why does Paul tell us that? Ephesians 5, 31 repeats the statement of Jesus here in Mark 10, 7 and 8 and of God back in Genesis 2, 24 when the two become one flesh. And then he says in verse 32, Ephesians 5, 32, he says, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Well, what is a profound mystery? What is about Christ and the church? Marriage. The two becoming one. <laughs> That's what he's talking about here, leaving and cleaving. So you mean marriage isn't my doing? No. I mean, you had to be there. You had to sign papers. You had to put a ring on the finger. You had to say, I do. It's ultimately, it's God's doing. You mean marriage isn't about me being happy or me having success in life, a white house with a picket fence, two and a half kids, a little munchkins running around? No, it does all those things, and those are good things. But that's not ultimately what marriage is about. Ultimately, foundationally, uh, marriage is a display of God's love for us for his redeemed people in Jesus Christ. It's to display that relationship. That's the Lord's purpose, and therein lies the problem with divorce. You understand? That's why in Malachi 2, God says he hates divorce, because it destroys his doing. and distracts from his display. Will God ever put away his people? Will God ever put away his people? Will he ever reject and divorce those who are in union with him by faith in Jesus Christ? No, he'll never leave you, no matter what you do. He'll never leave you. In verses 10 to 12, Jesus has a private moment to review this teaching with his disciples. It's away from the crowds. And in Mark's short, straightway uh, account of this event, he leaves out what's recorded in Matthew's account and in other places. Jesus provides for the same exact exception that God did back there in, in uh, Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4. Uh, if unfaithfulness has occurred... If the covenant has been broken between husband and wife, there's a concession that God makes for divorce. 
Even there, it's a concession. It's not a command. The gospel can heal even in such a situation. And again, please remember, Jesus' teaching here, it is preventative. It's not about what has already occurred in life. It's past. You can't go back. You can't go back and do anything about that. No, God can. God can, and he does. His goal here is to give us God's design and display in marriage for those who are headed into it. If divorce has been part of your past, what should your response to God's word here be? Well, still, understand God's design. If you're married, if you're remarried, live in that marriage now to display God's uh, grace to us in Jesus. Display the gospel. What do we do, if any type of negative thing, any sin is part of our past? Well, we embrace the gospel. We confess, we repent, we receive his full and free forgiveness. We, we live in the liberty of him setting us free. I'm so glad there's no sin outside his grace. There's no sin that's too great to be taken as far away as the east is from the west. The blood of Jesus, our faith in it, breaks chains. It heals wounds. It brings death to life. It wraps us in the loving arms of the one whose hands still bear the nail holes for us. That's what his grace does. When we've sinned, when people have sinned against us, that's what his grace does. Now let's go to child like faith. Because this is not a separate section here. This is a second reflection of what relationship with God through faith in Jesus is like. There's only one theme here in all of verses 1 through 16. And we see the exhortation of the king in verse 13. It says, and they brought young children to him that he should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. There's a discussion between Jesus and his disciples regarding marriage that's past. Some local people began to bring little kids to meet Jesus, to hear him, to interact with him. And it says here at the end of verse 13 that Jesus' disciples rebuked them. They told them to stop. Does that make you mad? It should. It made Jesus mad. It made Jesus really mad. Um, if you look at the next verse, when Jesus saw it, verse 14, he was much displeased. That's King James. <laughs> he was much displeased. Uh, in the Greek, it means he was incensed. Uh, he was indignant at what they had just done. Uh, the only time in all of the Gospels that it uses this type of word of this strong emotion in an interaction between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus says in verse 14, he says, No, bring them to me. Don't prohibit kids from coming to me for such is the kingdom of God. Now that of such, that of such is really important because Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is made up of people who are like, of such, who are like children. What does Jesus mean by that? I'm glad you asked because he's given us a second reflection of what relationship with God is like. He's telling us how to enter a relationship with him, how to be saved, how to enter the kingdom. In verses 15 and 16, with a very strong, listen up, pay attention to this vital lesson. That's whenever you see a verily I say unto you, or truly, that's what Jesus is saying there. And he says in verse 15, that to enter the kingdom of God, to become one, a Christian, to be saved, to be born again, we have to receive the gift of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. We have to receive it just like a little child receives a gift. In John 1, 12, we're told how we are saved. We're told how we become a part of God's kingdom and we're assured of eternal life in heaven with him. It says, but as many as received him, to them gave he the 
right, to become sons of God, how do we receive him? Even to those who what? Believe. Believe on his name. Receive uh, is done by believing. And so um, believing and receiving with a faith of, uh, the simple faith of a little child. That's how we enter the kingdom. Total trust. Full faith. Have you ever seen a kid receive a gift? It's pretty much total trust and simple faith. Even the most minuscule things. We'll see it tonight at the Iwana store. You know, and they've saved up their Iwana bucks for saying sections. And, you know, ooh, I got a lot, so I'm going to get the soccer ball. They don't take the soccer ball and go, I don't know. I really want it. They receive a gift. Just receive it. Faith. I've told you this acrostic before. The teens have heard it so many times. But forsaking all, I trust him. That is saving faith. Forsaking all, I trust him. That means forsaking what I do or what I don't do to be saved. Forsaking what good I think I've done. Forsaking what bad I know. I know I've done. Forsaking whatever supposed good works I think should merit my salvation. Here's the truth. There is none. Forsaking all. Just faith alone and God's grace to us alone in Jesus Christ alone. Charles Spurgeon said that on his deathbed, he planned. Somebody asked him, how, how can you be so sure you're going to heaven? He said, when I get to my deathbed, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to put all the good things I've done in my life in a big heap. I'm going to put all the wicked sins that I've committed in my life in another big heap. I'm going to set fire to them both and run to Jesus Christ. That's saving faith. That's the effect. The good stuff, that's the effect of saving faith. It doesn't merit any substantial righteousness before God. Only what Jesus has done for us. And that, that's why Jesus got so mad right here. Receiving and believing can be done even by a child. We've seen plenty of evidence for that in the last couple of years here at church. It can be done by, by a child. And boy, that ought to motivate us to, to not just not forbid them from coming to Christ, but to do all that we can to bring them, just like people did in verse 13. But I think it's very telling here that Jesus wasn't mad at the Pharisees at this point, or the people, or his disciples about those questions about divorce. We don't see him get much displeased, incensed, indignant about that. What makes God indignant in this passage about what relationship with God is like? What makes God mad? What makes Jesus mad when people act as obstacles to faith in Jesus instead of being opportunities for people to turn to faith in Jesus Christ? That's why Jesus flipped those tables with the money changers. That's why he did it. Um, they were being obstacles to faith in God. They were harboring hypocrisy in God's house. It's why Jesus did eventually turn his ire to these Pharisees in Matthew 23, 4. He says, you bind heavy and grievous burdens to be borne on people's shoulders, but you yourselves, you won't even lift one little finger to ease the burden. And in Luke eleven fifty two, 52, and he's talking to the Pharisees, he says, woe to you experts in the law, because you've taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves have not entered in, and you're hindering those who were entering. In short, God hates when the display of his grace is hindered. He hates when people are hindered from coming to faith in him, and God loves it. He loves when the display of his grace is helped, when people are helped to coming to faith in Jesus. So my prayer for you this morning 
is that you've recognized what Jesus has been teaching here. And it's all, all about reflecting relationship with him. Reflecting his covenant faithfulness to us in our lives, in our marriages specifically. It's, it's about living out the gospel in them, putting it on display. Husbands and wives, future husbands and wives, God's design is for your marriage to do that. Your marriage is the doing of God, and it's for the display of his grace to us in Jesus Christ. And the word of God here is about reflecting relationship and how we come to him like a little child, how we continue in him still like a little child with full faith and with total trust, just like a child receiving a gift. If you've never done that, whether you're watching, whether you're, you're here and you've never trusted Jesus alone, as Savior. Not what you've done or haven't done, but in Him alone. I invite you to do that this morning when we have a time of invitation. Don't wait till then. Do it right now. If you've got questions about what that means, uh, on the back of our bulletin, it, it tells, tells what it means to born, be born again. On our website, ask me, please. Christian, are you remaining in faith? Is your, marriage, is your marriage displaying the gospel? Is it doing what God designed it to do? Does it point others to Christ by its clear selflessness and sacrifice. That, it'll be the first gospel your kids ever see, I'll tell you that. Before they ever hear it, they're going to watch mom and dad be gracious to each other and forgive each other when they don't deserve it. Does it point others to Christ? Is it less about you and here and now stuff and more about Jesus and then and there stuff? Listen, your marriage is God's doing. And like everything else, everything else in your life, it's for the display of the gospel for those of you who have the pain of divorce in your past, will you allow God to use all of your life, even that, all of your life, all that you went through to display the gospel? The redemption of your past, will you allow God to use that? How through faith in Jesus, God can and he has made all things new in your life? The testimony of the power of his grace to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, what it has done, what it is doing in your life, how he has made what was broken, he has made it beautiful. Man, if that's been your testimony, well then will you praise him for it this morning? And will you preach that testimony to others? There's a lot of other people who need to hear that. Bad. They're where you were, and they need to hear it. They need to be healed by it. Don't miss that opportunity for your testimony to point others who are experiencing pain and brokenness to him. Do you realize this? You, you are this world's authority on what Jesus has done in your life. Nobody else. Nobody else can tell others what Jesus has done in your life. Tell them. Tell them how he's healed the pain of your past. Tell them how he's currently doing that and how your hope and joy is in him. Help others overcome obstacles to whatever or whoever is hindering them in faith to come into Jesus. However God has moved you to respond to his word, in obedience today, I just ask that you would obey.